Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me. My guest this week is Will Taylor, who is the front man of the band Flight. Will's inspirational spark is the Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman starring film Kramer vs. Kramer. And, uh... Boy, did we have a lot to talk about. This is actually a super interesting conversation on a lot of levels. Will has a strong personal connection to this movie because it's about divorce, particularly divorce involving a small child. And Will's parents got divorced when he was around the same age as the little boy in Kramer vs. Kramer. Then there's the film's narrative, which brings up a lot of issues surrounding relationships and gender and power dynamics and lots of other complex stuff. And then... There's the the behind-the-scenes story, which is legendary. Spoiler alert, Dustin Hoffman is not a great dude. So, uh, as you can see, lots of ground to cover. So let's get to it. Quick Will facts. Will Taylor is the lead singer and guitarist for London-based band Flight. Flight began to form when Will and John Superin started playing together aged 11 at their local comprehensive school. Later, Nick Hill would join after a series of lineup changes. The band released their debut album, The Loved Ones, under Island Records to widespread acclaim in autumn of 2017. Their second album, This Is Really Going to Hurt, was released last week. Quick Kramer vs. Kramer facts. Kramer vs. Kramer is a film released in 1979 starring Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman based on Avery Corman's novel of the same name. It tells the story of a couple's divorce, its impact on their young son, and the subsequent evolution of their relationship and views on parenting. It explores the psychology and fallout of divorce and touches upon prevailing or emerging social issues such as gender roles, women's rights, father's rights, work-life balance, and single parents. It went on to become the highest grossing film of the year and was nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning five, which was more than any other film that year. And that is actually just the tip of the iceberg, if you can believe it. This conversation is packed with so much more great stuff. So let's get to it. Here comes my chat with Will Taylor about Kramer versus Kramer. Standard, uh, standard opening. Uh, do you remember seeing Kramer versus Kramer for the first time? Um... I do really vividly, actually. I think this is maybe one of the reasons it has such an impact on me because I was mm. I was relatively young. I'd left school pretty young. In England, you you would do 
I guess high school is, I think it's a very different system here, but you would do um, at least up to about 18 years old and then you would go to university. I like I mentioned this basically in every episode, but I'm I'm a British citizen. I I, I know the the drill. I lived in the UK for uh, like twelve years, so um, yeah. Okay. I uh, and I'll yeah. absolutely get rid of that. GCSEs and and all yeah, that. Are, yeah, you yeah, do your you do your A levels, and then you go to college. Yeah. Um, so I I actually kind of um kind of gave up halfway through my A levels. So I was about sixteen, seventeen, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, I think I just decided at that point that I um, wanted to pursue music. And I think that's because I'd made a few albums quite young when I was at school and had had a few like early bits of interest from music industry and had gone to London and been all very excited. And obviously all of that stuff came to absolutely nothing. This was much, much later that everything actually started getting going for me. But at that point, I was sort of seduced enough by the music industry to drop out of school. And um, I'd... um, I'd met this very charming guy at a uh, an open mic night. Um, <laughs> as and, you do. As, he, as one does. <laughs> and, um, and he was from San Francisco and he was talking to me all the time about San Francisco and how brilliant it was. And I was that classic sort of stoner teenager, sort of slightly rakish, maybe precocious, pretentious, poety person. Um, I definitely wouldn't have liked myself. I wouldn't like myself if I met him now. <laughs> um, anyway, I kind of um, was probably reading like Kerouac, mm. you know, and Bukowski. Yeah, I mean, you know, standard. Yeah. I was 16. Yeah. And, um, and so I, yeah, I just sort of dropped out of school and I got, um, yeah, got on a plane and went to San Francisco. I didn't have any plans when I got there either. I didn't know anyone, so I was sort of sleeping rough. Mm. Ashbury for for a good amount of time until some kind of kind folk took me in and it was in that that house that I was staying in in San Francisco that there was just I was just watching DVDs in their house and and one of them was Kramer versus Kramer and I think it was a really big door opening moment for me in terms of my 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 like film taste Mm -hmm. and um I think the beginning of me really, really loving that kind of era of film, that real 35 millimeter New York autumn transition-y sort of Woody Allen inspired. It's really epitomizes that kind of era for me, that film. And um, very lean and very neat and tidy. Yeah. Uh, and, and very emotional, very emotionally intelligent, very to the point. Um, and it just really got me. And obviously, retrospectively, having had lots of therapy, I realized that it's because I was just fascinated with that film because of how close it was to my upbringing and my parents' divorce and how I was more or less that exact same age. Hmm. Uh, and yeah. And so, yeah, it just really knocked me for six. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, just having rewatched it last night, there are kind of three three areas uh, three lanes of interest for me at least when watching it and it's like there's the story there's the as you said like the the time period this kind of like a golden age of of filmmaking in the 70s when everything was really being pushed forward like naturalism realism was um kind of uh had, had taken center stage and you know like it, it was a time when this movie was the biggest highest grossing movie of the year and that right now is unimaginable like no one there you you would never have like uh you know custody battle courtroom drama yeah beating like marvel movies and that's exactly what happened like it it made more than alien 
I love that. So there's that. And then also all of this kind of behind the scenes uh, tension and intrigue that feeds into, you know, and there's some overlap there with the filmmaking style about, you know, Dustin Hoffman being part of the method and being kind of a shithead on set and, and all of that stuff. So there's all of this like amazing stuff bubbling around in this film that, like you said, is quite, uh, I wouldn't say simple, but it's like a very straightforward story. Um, not a lot of characters and uh, very focused. It's like a small snapshot of this relationship and the child who's kind of being pulled in two directions in the center of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. And and, and that's quite right. I mean, I, I, I kind of wanted to almost talk about how that film was an influence for the, for the stylistic reasons when I think about it and also for the kind of emotional content in terms of, you know, the record we've just done. But really, when I think about it, there's there there is there's so much more to it than that. And as you say, you know, it's 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 quite um, unsettling reading about Dustin Hoffman's process, mm-hmm. and and it's such a disappointment to me. It's such a yeah. I'd I'd, I'd say a bit of a diehard Dustin Hoffman fan and a Meryl Streep fan, obviously. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I'd say this is sort of his. He's really, really on top of it at this point in terms of mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of his just exuding empathy off the screen. And he's doing it in Tootsie as well, which is not long after, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's just such a beloved figure to me. And like Hook was like a big childhood film. And he's just so perfect in that. And to find that, find out that he was, you know, saying to, riling up Meryl Streep to get her, you know, close to tears for the scene. She was taunting him, at, taunting her about her um, recently bereaved husband. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, like really, really suspect technique mm. to get people in the scene. And, you know, interesting thinking about that really explosive and, and brilliant scene when she's kind of returned and she's saying she wants to have a son back and he's, he's, he's had this eight months or so becoming this father figure and he loses his rag and he smashes that white wine glass against the wall. Mm-hmm. So, so brilliant. And, and I remember a long time ago hearing that that was improvised and it was, and you could see her reaction and it was such a true, real reaction and, and me thinking that was just so great. But then kind of, you know, retrospectively thinking it would have been nice maybe if, she, if he'd warned her that she, he was going to do that because she right. could have had a, a whole mixture of, she's a professional, she's Meryl Street. She could have handled that. Yeah. And, and it's almost like this was her moment, this scene, and he's just, it's just found his way of like upping the ante and claiming it back for himself. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me think of the legendary interaction between Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier, where, you know, Dustin Hoffman has stayed up for three or four days for this like torture scene in Marathon Man. And Laurence Olivier is just like, it's called acting. Just (laughs) what are you doing? Chill out, mate. Chill out. Yeah. I remember saying that to my dad, actually saying, because we were talking about Gilgood, uh, John Gilgood and, and, and Lawrence Olivier and that kind of ilk of actor and, mm. and saying to him, Dad, I really think, you know, I just don't, I much prefer these, like the Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro school of acting. Like I, I just, I see these old actors and it just feels a bit hammy and I don't feel that emotionally engaged with them and stuff. And um, and I remember, I can't remember specifically what he said, but he shot me down quite quickly and said, <laughs> very pretentious and pointless and very self-indulgent, which it probably is. Yeah. I think, you know, comparing 
uh, Dustin Hoffman's process and Meryl Streep's process, there's a lot of echoes of their relationship in the film as well. Um, and in the you know broader context of the film in terms of feminism and the way that people viewed divorce, the way that people viewed custody battles at the time. And I've read things saying that like the stuff that happens in the courtroom and the decision that's made about what happens to their son, even at the time, divorce lawyers were like, this is bullshit. That would never, ever, ever happen. Um, but uh, thinking about the the acting stuff that, you know, I am an actor as well. And the the issue that I've always had with method acting is that it's like divorces itself from the idea of acting. It's playing pretend. It's not real. You don't have to actually have experienced all of this stuff to imagine what it's like. Um, And it's, it's, you know, to me, creativity is about, you know, being able to put yourself into that character's shoes without actually saying, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm going to go and be a cobbler for two years before I uh, make a movie or, or whatever. Um, and it's all stylistic differences. And whatever gets people to that point is if the end result is an amazing performance, it doesn't really matter as long as they're not inflicting that on other actors. And I've seen quotes from Meryl Streep where she's just like, do whatever you want to do to get to the place where you feel like you're in character, but don't involve me in it. <laughs> That's not my process. And yeah. we each have our own things. We have our own priorities in terms of our acting style, all that stuff. And I don't want you using me as a prop in your uh, in in getting to the place where you need to get to. Of course, and 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 you look at her performance, and arguably it's it's stronger and realer mm. and more realer and more you know um emotionally engaged than his his is is theatrical in comparison to her i mean there are moments where she's she's you can see her trying not to cry and crying anyway mm-hmm. and you can you can just see her really being someone who has actually abandoned their child and for these really complicated and yeah just these really complicated reasons and and she's exuding it and she was probably just like smoking a fag and making a joke with the you know, sound guy, like just before the, you know, it started, you know, I, I heard about Julianne Moore being like that very almost inappropriately. So just kind of making horrific jokes, like right up until Mm -hmm. action. And then she would just snap in and be Julianne Moore and win an Oscar. But yeah, maybe it's just this sort of machismo male self-indulgence, that whole method thing. Yeah. And again, I find that really interesting in a movie like this, on a set like this, where in the book, I think the wife was a lot less sympathetic. And the man who wrote the book said that it was written as a reaction to feminism and to kind of say that he felt that men were being hard done by, that there was a um, a push that feminism was anti-man and he wanted to write this book to show that men are good fathers and that sometimes it's the woman's fault that a relationship fails and women can be bad mothers as much as men can be bad fathers and Meryl Streep read the book and was you know when she was thinking about doing the movie and was like that's bullshit and she really fought to make her character more sympathetic and to make changes uh, you know i mean the, she worked with the director on this but her big speech in in when she's on the stand in the courtroom she wrote that herself yeah no i i, I had read that too i think it's it's interesting that she it's interesting you say that and that she'd done that i'm glad that she had and interesting that that was the book was a bit meninisty then that's interesting because mm, the film yeah. i i love so much for the fact that it does make a point that I suppose would have been that is fairly unique in a film, like the idea of, a, of I mean, certainly incredibly unfashionable as well to suggest that men can be good fathers too, and and to to you know take that take 
take the side of the man in a story like that. Mm -hmm. But what's so good about it is it, it sort of doesn't do that because she's so sympathetic. And and for me, what's so powerful is it's it's kind of a, a rare instance of examining person that leaves a relationship, someone someone who goes far as to leave their child as well, and try and explain why that might happen. And, right. and the courage it takes for someone to put their own mental health above whatever situation and, and to walk away and do the most painful thing for themselves and the people around them for their own self-preservation. Something I, I think that my, you know, I think that again, why it hit me so hard when I first watched it is something that my mum very much did. My mum was the one that left my dad. And at the time there was a lot of vitriol towards her. And it was just like, why would you do that? Why would you break up with this family? And like, fuck you, mum, and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't the kind of dad pisses off and you know ruins everything it was it, mm -hmm. it, it felt at the time like it was the other way around you know and then as 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 the as the years passed you know you realized that it was so much more uh nuanced than that and mm -hmm. and actually it was um and there was that very for me very powerful scene where he's trying to explain to the son that that she hadn't left because the son had been naughty or like been bad it wasn't the son's right. fault it was he tries his best to explain that he'd been neglectful and he'd been too wrapped up in his stuff and hadn't realized that his wife was deeply unhappy and was not in the relationship she wanted to be and oh it just gets me welling up thinking about it because it's just i don't know i just i'd never seen that kind of conversation happen so starkly mm -hmm. on screen and um and it never felt political to me as well the idea of men versus women and i mean in the end the reason my mum left was because my dad was um is gay mm. and um and had been before she'd met him and knew full well that he was a gay man um and just sort of was like nah no we're gonna make it happen kind of saw him around <laughs> had some had some children with him and and um and um and so i think i i i had a, a fairly kind of skewed idea of the roles that men and women should have as fathers and all that kind of stuff yeah um so what really hit me at the time was was really just the mother's role and the explanation and you know the fact that she just needed a second to go to california and have a therapist and work out her stuff and to realize that she really loved her son she needed to come back to new york she just needed to sort her shit out basically come back and reconvene right so that i think it's i yeah i don't know it's it's, it's interesting isn't it thinking about it like a men need their voice heard in court with custody mm. kind of thing. Cause I suppose that is all, as well, like what it is that film. I just never took, I never really took that aspect of it in as much. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think definitely the film creates a, a balance and is, you know, doesn't yeah. paint anyone as a villain. Um, I think the, the woman in the book is much more two dimensional and it's like, she's fucked off and she's a bad mom. And that's what, you know, that's the sum right. total of what's happening. Who's the guy who wrote it? His, sorry, not, not to quit. Wouldn't I you just, like to know? I mean, uh, and I can't Google. I can't Google when we've come off the I court. got it. I got it. Avery Corman. See that? That's a name you don't hear every, every day. Well, yeah. Avery, or is that an American name? Yeah. I, uh, not a common name either way. But uh, thinking also about Meryl Streep being, you know, I think she, she was 27 at the time, but she was pretty fresh out of drama school. Yeah. She'd done theater and she'd done a few film roles, but this was the thing that really launched her career. But she'd done Deer Hunter at this point. Yeah, exactly. Um, with her partner who who died. But just thinking about somebody, a woman in the late 70s, yeah. taking that 
agency and and you know saying these are things that are really important to me this character needs to shift so that she's a real person and i want to play somebody who's who's real i don't want to play this skeletal version of like you know a man a man's idea of what a woman is when she's left him um without taking into account her perspective at all and then her performance is just brilliant she's you know it's uh it it makes sense that she won an oscar for it yeah i mean she's a pioneer then i mean she's she absolutely pioneered that space for herself i wonder as well because she i i remember hearing in an interview with her that she had been told more than a few times that she wasn't you know conventionally attractive enough to be a leading role right and and her seeing herself i suppose actually how dustin hoffman would have seen himself too because he was told also that he was too unattractive to be a leading man he was a he was a kind of character actor because right because he was short and not conventionally attractive but she maybe was able to come in through that side door of being a sort of the not Hepburn traditional beauty even though she is absolutely beautiful yeah yeah that's the thing that I find interesting as well is that it's like it was it was at a time that I think there was one very particular standard for beauty. It was like this kind of Farrah Fawcett, like, you know, old, uh, a 70s version of old school Hollywood glamour where, you know, you had to fit in this one box. And I think Meryl Streep was told as well that she's a character actor. She just needs to yeah. stay in her lane. And obviously she's she's done quite well as a, uh, a lead. <laughs> well, it's almost as if to make a sort of musical comparison, it's almost like um, if you're an alternative artist, you know, mm-hmm. you're deemed suddenly an alternative artist. Suddenly the sort of eye of Sauron kind of just pulls away from you and you're suddenly there sort of, you know, free to kind of make some bigger decisions, you know, make right. your own decisions and kind of sculpt your own way. You know, if you're a, you know, if you're a pop act, pop act, you know, quote unquote, I don't know what that really means these days, but you know, if you're on a major label and there's a lot of money going into you and there are a lot of dudes in a, mm-hmm. in a office you know very concerned with what your look is or what your next song is all that kind of stuff then you're you're so much more trapped creatively yeah and i I suppose in a way the 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 film industry in the 70s was ultimately like that it had opened up again hadn't it it was a lot more it was it's like that sort of easy rider raging bull Mm -hmm. kind of era there's that great book on yeah yeah it's amazing yeah and um, and it just sort of it just let a lot of new things bloom including the female lead being able to actually sculpt their own part yeah outside of yeah get, get themselves three dimensional finally yeah. and my god she's three dimensional in that I I, mm-hmm. I I i absolutely think it's her best role in terms of her performance in terms of the nuance of what she's trying to do i i i also think that you know it's not actually that well written the film mm-hmm. um, it's 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 beautifully told. I love how uh, lean and to the point it is. There's not a kind of an ounce of fat on it. It just gets right through to the end. It's about like an hour and a half long, which is I think in today's standards, it's that's like half a film. Right. And um, I don't know. It just uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, what are her like really defining roles? She's got she's got like Sophie's Choice. Did she win the mm-hmm. Oscar or yeah, Out of Africa? Out of Africa. I mean, I don't love those films. I don't love Sophie's Choice. You know, um, I, th- I just think she's she's absolutely in her, her element there. And maybe that's because, I guess this is where I was leading, maybe that's because she had to really fight her character into that mm. place. It's like solely down to her to not only do a great performance, but to kind of rewrite her performance in the face of this kind of megalomaniac Dustin Hoffman and what I can only assume is a bunch of other megalomaniac males. Right. Yeah. And just, just thinking about, you know, the, like a career 
retrospective for her and how varied her roles are and going back to that idea of the the process of putting together a performance and i know she works on on her characters and stuff and when she has to do an accent she like writes out the whole script in the phonetic alphabet really intense stuff but it's this kind of private personal stuff that she does that she doesn't you know she might stay in character on a set but i don't think she's she's not known for abusing other actors and then to still really be a character actor because she does disappear into or she 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 doesn't disappear into her roles she just inhabits them she's very believable in everything that she does but she's still really commanding and she's obviously a lead actor so this is this is turning into like an absolute you know meryl uh, gush <laughs> fest here but um i'm, I'm on board with it uh, why not i mean <laughs> I was just about to say, she's almost like Tom Hanks, you know, it's like you never think Mm -hmm. of Tom Hanks as the, he's not a George Clooney. He's like a, it's hard to place him really. He is a leading man as she's a leading lady. And it's like, you just, I don't know what it is. We're just so used to seeing them just on every bloody film. Yeah. Just the most comforting thing. If you see her on screen, you just, you just disappear into it. Don't you? you just are relaxed. I mean, that's what entertainers should do. That's what actors should do. That's what musicians should do. That's certainly what actors should do on stage. You're supposed to lull the audience into this sense of security because an audience there primed and ready to be like, oh God, don't fuck this up and make this awkward for everyone. This is going to be so awkward if you forget your line or if something goes wrong or if there's some feedback or like everyone's ready to just, you know, just be anxious about it because it's this ultimately this preposterous notion that everyone should, thousands of people should sit down and watch these people sort of play pretend in front of them in real life or come and things belong to them but you know there's those those people that can just transport you instantly just by just seeing their face yeah and she's she's definitely one of them we should change the subject from Meryl Streep because we could just go on and on (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah but I you know I think having that performance as an anchor the um the little boy in it is is pretty incredible for a seven-year-old as well. Is there a better child performance from anyone? Yeah. It's just incredible. Mm. He's um he's what can only be like improvised moments a lot of the time. He's kind of crying and Yeah. I hope I hope Dustin Hoffman wasn't sort of like sticking little needles at him and <laughs> just getting him to get those performances. Yeah, I think he kind of was. <laughs> he uh the playground scene when he falls off of the the playground equipment right and he has to cry dustin hoffman went up to him and he's like you know that everybody you've met on set you're not gonna know after this movie they're all gonna go away <laughs> action <laughs> and he was like hysterical <laughs> crying would not stop crying after the the take so oh um, god okay yeah, yeah. wow this <laughs> is it's not looking good for Dustin, is it? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's uh, the, the, the Me Too uh, allegations uh, against him as well have kind of cemented his, his legacy yeah. as not a great dude. Well, this is a, this is a shadow hanging over, uh, really annoyingly, my kind of favorite era of film. Because, you know, there's something about New York, there's something about it being shot in 35mm in that specific way. You know, Gordon Willis is a cinematographer. In fact, I don't think Gordon Willis did shoot Kramer versus Kramer, but he did do Annie Hall and Interiors and um, Manhattan. Right. Um, but like the, that specific look, and then it always feels like it's autumn. And it's always, mm. it's always in a period of transition and divorce. Why, New, New York really suits divorce for some reason. Yeah. Marriage story was in New York as well, wasn't it? And right. Yeah. I think Paul Simon was saying about divorce, and he's very New York to me. And yeah. But then you know, Woody Allen. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't watch this stuff anymore. Damn it. And yeah. and 
and Dustin Hoffman. Maybe it's yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is about that time. I guess it was a lot of free reign. It's a bit of a kind of cowboy era, wasn't it? In terms of mm-hmm. people kind of reinventing, you know, the, the the formula of making films and just a lot of free reign for people to be just colossal dicks. <laughs> Yeah. And also a a time, you know, historically in film actors didn't have much of a a part in the process. They were just hired guns. And, you know, it used to be, as I'm sure you're aware that, you know, people had studio contracts and they would just be thrown into movies by the studio. And this was a time when actors were really given um, a, a role in the creative process and were allowed to have input into character development and into the script and in you know could control what was happening on set a lot more and when you have someone like dustin hoffman who's a a huge movie star at the time um and really one of the the actors at at the top of you know the upper echelons of of um hollywood actors and people's behavior is just I, i think it sounds like everyone on set really hated him and that he was a nightmare to work with for everybody but because the end result is this film that grosses more than any other film that year sweeps the oscars all of this other shit he gets away with it yeah i mean it is a sensational performance yeah it is just magnificent from everyone in it including even the um the neighbor the friend oh uh, yeah jane alexander yeah. jane alexander who what, what else is she in i know she's like in, in the odd like she gets like small she pops up in things and she's in like she's in like cider house rules she was like in the yeah. ring i think it like the the first American ring, but yeah, she's, she she's done a lot of stage stuff. She was in stage, okay, all the president's it. men as well. Um, oh, right. But yeah, she she is more of a character actor. She gets um, has kind of supporting roles most of the time, but she's incredible. I love her. I love her in it. And um, yeah, he's just he was yeah. So he was disliked by everyone. So I think he was obviously just drunk on power and his yeah. own his own ability. Yeah, and cle- clearly angry about something. Whilst yeah, that. I mean, you know, he had just he he was in the middle of a divorce when he was he making this movie as well. Okay, so, so he was just taking his share on everyone, including yeah, the role. Yeah, which is why the role is so brilliant, and it's why everyone's had such an awful time working with him. Yeah, That's so interesting. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, it's, if again to make the musical comparison, you've got you know the old uh, the old artists of forties, fifties, sixties. I mean, right up until now, it still happens this way. But when an artist is you know, like when the studio kind of puts everything together, everyone's in their little box, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the actor is the actor and they don't, they don't step outside of that role. You know, there was the, the singer, the, the wonderful singer who had a great voice and had a little angle, maybe had a good look or maybe they were attractive or maybe they were just interesting, but they were, that was their job was to sing the song beautifully. And then they had a bunch of writers and then the, those, the writers, were, that was their job to write. And then the engineer, and it was their job to make everything be so it was recorded perfectly and the producer to make sure the whole thing, you know, it was just so neat and tidy, all the roles. And then, and then you ended up having, you know, bands that, and artists that make their own stuff and they maybe even make their own artwork and films. And then they, they suddenly start taking over everything and, and, and drugs are suddenly involved and suddenly we're experimenting and we're seeing everything expand. And it feels like that era in time was... Well, I mean, certainly in the 60s and 70s, that's where it was going. But I quite like how um, at this point, you know, as you say, a film that is about a courtroom drama and about divorce is the biggest grossing film. Mm -hmm. I like how suddenly it's just, it's slightly put, the cinema's just a little, just put its tie up a little bit and done its top button up and it's, everything's just, just lean as anything. And it's just really neat and tidy and lean. Yeah. And um, yeah, I love, I, I, I love, I love music to be that way. I love for music to have to have 
broken through all the boundaries it needs to learn what it's like to do a 14 minute long prog jam, mm. you know, and, and written all the crap songs and then written all the good songs and done whatever. And then is able to just say, this song is about grief, you know, and then just write a really short three minute song that says exactly that one thing. And it just sticks in your craw and it's just this perfect little gem. Yeah. 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 That's how I feel about this film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 um, that, that all makes sense. And it is like the, the, that's a, a good distillation of the creative process, I think, kind of across the board that any, anyone who's involved in the arts in any way, that it's about kind of trying to take all of these ideas, everything that's in your head and try to distill it down into something that's a bit easier to consume and that people can absorb and relate to. And um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, we haven't got a moment to spare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that is a lovely place to stop. This was so fantastic. Thank you so oh, much. That's well, my pleasure. It's, I can't tell you it's like the first time I've ever had an opportunity to ramble about a film from 1979 and not just <laughs> how I write songs is the lyrics come first and then the music and then. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. me. Yeah. yeah. All right. Take care. All right. See you, mate. Bye. So good, right? What a lovely guy. Thanks again to Will for chatting with me. The brand new Flight album, This Is Really Going To Hurt, is out now for you to stream and or download and or buy physical copies wherever you do those things. Okay. Quick spark of inspiration from your resident culture expert. That's me, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, anyway, J to G who is a Canadian DJ, just released a new single called All I Need from her forthcoming DJ Kicks set. For the uninitiated, DJ Kicks uh, is a series of DJ mixes produced by DJs, obviously, also producers and sometimes bands. Each set usually has a little bit of the artist's music mixed in, and that's what Jada G has done here. All I need, this song, is housey and soulful, and I love it. The video is some 90s-looking footage of a bunch of kids driving to a rave and dancing in the middle of nowhere. It makes me excited for the summer and for hearing music in public places again. So let's just all get vaccinated and keep wearing masks and stay safe so that we can all have some fun in the warm weather. Okay? Okay. And that's it. Uh, please rate and review this show if you love it. It really helps other people to discover it. And if you hate this show, well, whisper those thoughts into a cupboard under your sink. And uh, yeah, outside of that, have a great week. Be good. And until next time, bye. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.